0: Episode 21. So many white blossoms cradle the fair street in spring's promise. Life begins again. Life fights on. Everyone gets a chance at renewal. Greetings and welcome in to episode 21 of the Patuxent General. This week we're taking it easy, using up some leftovers, and a deep reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft in our House on the Corner series. But first, our undying affection must be stated for our Patreon subscribers. You generous folk help us keep the home fires burning here at the Patuxent General, and we thank you. You deserve a sweet treat. How about a leftover chocolate egg martini? So, this weekend while I was finishing up the lamy cake, I wondered what to do with the peanut butter filled eggs. It struck me. A chocolate martini. Well, I dug around a bit and hit upon a glamorous origin story for this sweet indulgence. It begins in 1955 Marfa, Texas at the Hotel Paisano. To this day, you can stay in the Rock Hudson Suite, where during the filming of Giant, he and Elizabeth Taylor, with their mutual love of chocolate and martinis, invented the chocolate martini. Their original version is as such, two-thirds vodka to one-third Kahlua plus Hershey syrup, shaken over shaved ice, then poured through a strainer onto a chilled martini glass, rimmed with cocoa, then topped with shaved chocolate. Ours is similar, but I think with a few fun tweaks. You will need shaved or crushed ice, a chilled martini glass, large, two and a half ounces of chilled vodka, one and a half ounce of chocolate liqueur, one half ounce Kahlua, and one half ounce dark coffee. You know, cooled espresso would really be great in this. For the rim, sugar, and for the garnish, a coconut-covered marshmallow and a peanut butter-filled egg. So... Fill your shaker three-quarters of the way with shaved ice. Add booze and the coffee, then pour through your strainer into the martini glass that has been chilled and rimmed with sugar. Add your skewer with marshmallow and peanut butter chocolate egg, and ta-da! Now you have encouragement for spring cleaning. Enjoy! Enjoy! Today's recipe is a ginger cabbage salad. For this recipe, you will need one clove of garlic, finely diced, one quarter to one half of a red cabbage, cut into thin slices, one quarter to one half of white cabbage, cut into thin slices, one red onion, top and bottom, cut off, then in half, then thinly slice the onion the long way, one full finger of ginger, fresh, one orange or yellow pepper seeds removed and finely diced one orange or yellow pepper seeds removed and finely diced one carrot shredded and for the dressing one quarter cup honey molasses or sugar one quarter cup apple cider vinegar one tablespoon worcestershire sauce one half tablespoon soy sauce, one teaspoon fish sauce, salt and pepper, one tablespoon wine vinegar, two tablespoons olive oil or any fine oil you prefer, and a quarter of a teaspoon hot sesame oil. This is one of my favorite go-to salads. It is very pretty, light, and full of flavor. Leftovers marinate to a fantastic degree. Use it on sandwiches on the side of a lunch plate or as a palate cleanser on top of greens to have another salad altogether. Let's start with the ginger. I buy fresh ginger by the pound or by the hand. For this recipe, we will need a two-inch long piece of ginger and a metal teaspoon. The easiest method of peeling ginger with the least amount of waste is as follows. With the bowl of the spoon facing you, drag the spoon's edge across the skin and it'll pull right off. Then slice the ginger into planks the long way. Then slice those planks into long strips, then turn and slice across the grain to make tiny cubes. They are ready for the salad bowl. Or you could just put peeled ginger into your food processor and pulse it until the consistency you want. I like mine a tiny bit chunky for that burst of ginger. Throw the rest of the dressing ingredients into the bowl. The honey vinegars, sauces, and olive oil and fine garlic. Give it a good whisk and taste. It should be a little sweet, a little sour, a little salty with a good smack of ginger and a tiny bit of heat to finish. When you love what you taste, albeit a little potent, add your vegetables. All of these colors truly make this a beautiful rainbow. It has crunch and soft bits. Enjoy it now and later. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego, too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, Part 4. It was toward May when Dr. Willett, at the request of the senior ward and fortified with all the Kerwin data which the family had gleaned from Charles in his non-secretive days, talked with the young man. The interview was of little value or conclusiveness, for Willet felt that every moment that Charles was thoroughly master of himself and in touch with matters of real importance. But it at least forced the secretive youth to offer some rational explanation of his recent demeanor of a pallid, impassive type, not easily shewing embarrassment, Ward seemed quite ready to discuss his pursuits, though not to reveal their object. He stated that the papers of his ancestor had contained some remarkable secrets of early scientific knowledge, for the most part in cipher of an apparent scope comparable only to the discoveries of Friar Bacon, and perhaps surpassing even those. They were, however, meaningless, except when correlated with the body of learning now wholly obsolete, so that their immediate presentation to a world equipped only with modern science would rob them of all impressiveness and dramatic significance to take their vivid place in history of human thought they must first be correlated by one familiar with the background out of which they evolved and to this task of correlation ward was now devoting himself he was seeking to acquire as fast as possible those neglected arts of old which a true interpreter of the Kerwin data must possess and hoped in time to make a full announcement and presentation of the utmost interest to mankind and to the world of thought not even einstein he declared could more profoundly revolutionize the current conception of things as to his graveyard search whose object he freely admitted, but the details of which progress he did not relate. He said he had reason to think that Joseph Kerwin's mutilated headstone bore certain mystic symbols, carved from directions in his will and ignorantly spared by those who had effaced the name, which were absolutely essential to the final solution of his cryptic system. Kerwin, he believed, had wished to guard his secret with care and had consequently distributed the data in an extremely curious fashion. When Dr. Willett asked to see the mystic documents, Ward displayed much reluctance and tried to put him off with such things as a photostatic copy of the Hutchinson cipher, an Orne formulae and diagrams, but finally showed him the exteriors of some of the real Kerwin finds, the journal and notes, the cipher, title and cipher also and the formula-filled message to whom who shall come after, and let him glance inside, such as were in obscure characters. He also opened the diary at a page carefully selected for its inconclusiveness, and gave Willet a glimpse of Kerwin's connected handwriting in English. The doctor noted very closely the crabbed and complicated letters and the general aura of the 17th century that clung round both penmanship and style, despite the writer's survival into the 18th century, and became quickly certain that the document was genuine. The text itself was relatively trivial, and Willitt recalled only a fragment. Wednesday, 16th October, 1754. My sloop, the wakeful this day, put in from London, with twenty new men picked up, two of whom are likely to desert having heard somewhat ill of the ventures. But I will see to you including them to stay, for Mr. Knight, Dexter of Bay, and book one hundred twenty pieces cambits, one hundred pieces assorted cambatines, twenty pieces blue duffels, one hundred pieces shaloons, fifty pieces Kamakenos, three hundred pieces each, shemsy and hum-hums. For Mr. Green at Y 50 gallon kettles, 20 warming pans, 15 bake kettles, 10 pounds smoked tongue, for Mr. Perigo at a set of balls, for Mr. Nightingale, 50 reams, prime full scrap. Say your Sabbath thrice this night, but none appeared. I must hear more from Mr. H in Transylvania. Though it is hard reaching him and exceedingly strange that he did not give me use of what he hath so well used these hundred years, Simon hath not writ these five weeks, but I expect soon hearing from him. Upon reaching this point, Dr. Willett turned the leaf. He was quickly checked by Ward, who almost snatched the book from his grasp. All that the doctor had a chance to see on the newly opened page was a brief pair of sentences. But these, strangely enough, lingered tenaciously in his memory. They ran. Ye verse from Labrador bespoke. Five rude masses and four hollows eaves, I am hopefully thing will breed outside your spheres. It will draw the one who is to come. If I can make sure he shall be, he shall think on past things, and look back through your years, against which I must have ready assaults, or that to make em with. Willitt saw no more, but somehow this small glimpse gave a new and vague horror to the painted features of Joseph Kerwin, which stared blandly down from the overmantel. Ever after that he entertained the odd fancy, which his medical skill of course assured him it was only a fancy— that the eyes of the portrait had a sort of wish, if not actual tendency, to follow young Charles Ward as he moved about the room. He stopped before leaving to study the picture more closely, marveling at its resemblance to Charles, and memorizing every minute detail of the cryptical, colorless face, even down to the slight scar or pit in the smooth brow above the right eye. Cosmo Alexander, he decided was a painter worthy of the Scotland that produced Rayburn, and a teacher worthy of his illustrious pupil, Gilbert Stuart, assured by the doctor that Charles' mental health was in no danger, but that, on the other hand, he was engaged in researches that might prove of real importance. The wards were more lenient than they might otherwise have been, when, during the following June, the youth made positive his refusal to attend college. He had, he declared... Studies of a much more vital importance to pursue. The senior ward, while denying the latter wish as absurd for a boy of only 18, acquiesced regarding the university. So that after a none too brilliant graduation from the Moses Brown School, there ensued for Charles a three-year period of intense occult study and graveyard searching. He became recognized as an eccentric and dropped even more completely from the sight of his family's friends than he had ever been before, keeping close to his work and only occasionally making trips to other cities to consult obscure records. Once he went south to talk with a strange old man who dwelt in a swamp and about whom the newspaper had printed a curious article. Again he sought a small village in the Adirondacks, whence reports of certain odd ceremonial practices had come, but still his parents forbade him the trip to the old world which he desired, coming of age in April 1923, and having previously inherited a small competence from his maternal grandfather." ward determined at last to take the european trip hitherto denied him of his proposed itinerary he would save nothing save that the needs of his studies would carry him to many places but he promised to write his parents fully and faithfully When they saw he could not be dissuaded they ceased all opposition and helped as best they could so that in june the young man sailed for liverpool with the farewell blessings of his father and mother who accompanied him to boston and waved out of sight from the White Star Pier in Charleston. Letters soon told of his safe arrival and of his securing good quarters in Great Russell Street, London, where he proposed to stay, shunning all family friends. he had exhausted the resources of the British Museum in a certain direction. Of his daily life, he wrote, but little, for there was little to write. Study and experiment consumed all his time, and he mentioned a laboratory, which he had established in one of his rooms, that he said nothing of antiquarian rambles in the glamorous old city with its luring skyline of ancient domes and steeples and its tangles of roads and alleys whose mystic convolutions and sudden vistas alternately beckon and surprise, was taken by his parents with a good index to the degree which his new interest had engrossed his mind by june 1924 a brief note told of his departure for paris to which he had before made one or two flying trips for material in the bibliothèque nationale for three months thereafter he sent only postal cards giving an address in the rue saint jacques and referring to a special search among rare manuscripts in the library of an unnamed private collector he avoided acquaintances, so no tourists brought back reports of having seen him. Then came a silence, and in October, the wards received a picture card from Prague, Czechoslovakia, stating that Charles was in the ancient town for the purpose of conferring with a certain very aged man, supposed to be the last living possessor of some very curious medieval information. He gave an address in Nudstot, and announced no move until the following January, when he dropped several cards from Vienna telling of his passage through that city on a way toward a more easterly region, whither one of his correspondents and fellow delvers into the account had invited him. The next card was from Clausenberg in Transylvania, and told of Ward's progress toward his destination. He was going to visit a Baron Ferenzi, whose estate lay in the mountains east of Racchus, and was to be addressed at Racchus in the care of that nobleman. Another card came from Racchus a week later, saying that his host’s carriage had met him and that he was leaving the village for the mountains. This was his last message for a considerable time. Indeed, he did not reply to his parents' frequent letters until May, when he wrote to discourage the plan of his mother for a meeting in London, Paris, or Rome during the summer, when the elder wards were planning to travel to Europe. His researches, he said, were such that he could not leave his present quarters. While the situation of Baron Ferenzi's castle did not favor visits, it was on a crag in the dark wooded mountains, and the region was so shunned by the country folk that normal people could not help feeling ill at ease. Moreover, the Baron was not a person likely to appeal to correct and conservative New England gentlefolk. His aspect and manners had idiosyncrasies, and his age was so great as to be disquieting. It would be better, Charles said, if his parents would wait for his return to Providence, which could scarcely be far distant. That return did not, however, take place until May 1926, when after a few heralding cards, the young wanderer quietly slipped into New York on the Homeric and traversed the long miles to Providence by motor coach, eagerly drinking in the green rolling hills, the fragrant blossoming orchards, and the white-steepled towns of Vernal, Connecticut. His first taste of ancient New England in nearly four years. When the coach crossed the Pawcatuck and entered Rhode Island amidst the fairy goldenness of the late spring afternoon, his heart beat with a quickened force and the entry to Providence along Reservoir and Elmwood Avenues was a breathless and wonderful thing, Despite the depths of forbidden lore to which he had delved. At the high square where Broadway Bosset and Empire Streets join, he saw before and below him, in the fire of sunset, the pleasant remembered houses and domes and steeples of the old town, and his head swam curiously as the vehicle rolled down the terminal behind the Biltmore, bringing into view the great dome and the soft roof pierced greenery of the ancient hill across the river, and the tall colonial spire of the first. First Baptist Church, limned pink in the magic evening light, against the fresh springtime verdure of its precipitous background, old Providence. It was this place and the mysterious forces of its long, continuous history which had brought him into being and which had drawn him back towards marvels and secrets whose boundaries no prophet might fix. Here lay the Arcana, wondrous or dreadful as the case may be, for which all his years of travel and application had been preparing him. A taxicab whirled him through the post office square, the old market house, and the head of the bay, and up the steep curved slope of Waterman Street to Prospect, where the vast gleaming domes... And sunset-flushed, iconic columns of the Christian Science Church beckoned northward. Then eight squares past the fine old estates his childish eyes had known, and the quaint brick sidewalks, so often trodden by his youthful feet. And at last, the little white overtaken farmhouse on the right, and on the left, the classic Adam porch and stately bayed facade of the great brick house where he was born. It was twilight, and Charles Dexter Ward had come home. We'd like to thank you again for joining us here at the PG. If you have any comments, questions, or to submit a ghost story, or perhaps to book a demonstration, our email is jess at Please feel free to reach out on Facebook or YouTube at the Patuxa General. If you like, comment and subscribe. You will never miss an episode with the background of a live-time Patuxet sunrise captioned for the hearing impaired. Thank you again for staying this time with me, and I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxet.